You're listening to Vatican Radio. In this week's edition of Gospel Truth, the late Jill Bevilacqua and Sean Patrick Lovett bring us readings and reflections from the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 1, verses 40 through 45, on this sixth Sunday in Ordinary Time. A leper approached Jesus with a request, kneeling down as he addressed him. If you will do so, you can cure me. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand, touched him, and said, I do will it, be cured. The leprosy left him then and there, and he was cured. Jesus gave him a stern warning and sent him on his way. Not a word to anyone now, he said. Go off and present yourself to the priest and offer for your cure what Moses prescribed. That should be a proof for them. The man went off and began to proclaim the whole matter freely, making the story public. As a result of this, it was no longer possible for Jesus to enter a town openly. He stayed in desert places, yet people kept coming to him from all sides. There's no way we can get away from it. Today's gospel plunges us right into the action. And the protagonists are immediately before us. Where are they? We don't know. Only Luke, in his account, writes that Jesus was in one of the towns. And he goes on, when a man appeared, covered with leprosy. Graphic as usual, Luke the doctor makes no allowance for the queasy. But if this incident happened in a town, how was it that a leper could approach Jesus? They were not allowed to live among their healthy fellow men, as the book of Leviticus prescribed, and which was quoted in today's first reading. A man infected with leprosy must wear his clothing torn and his hair disordered. He must shield his upper lip and cry, Unclean, unclean. As long as the disease lasts, he must be unclean, and therefore he must live apart, he must live outside the camp. The word camp, of course, takes us back to the time of the Exodus, when the Israelites were still in the wilderness. But in our Lord's time, the rule of segregation was still followed, and the rabbis had even fixed the distance which a leper must keep from other people, four cubits, approximately two metres. If the leper did appear in a town, one wonders first how he entered it. Perhaps it was siesta time and there was no one about. And if he did, and managed to worm his way through the crowd that was surely surrounding Jesus, what must have been the reaction when people realised who had come among them? One can almost hear the screams, see the instinctive drawing back of those nearest to our Lord, the horror on all the faces. But the fact that Jesus told the man, after he'd cured him, not to tell anyone, suggests that there must have been few, if any, witnesses to the miracle— apart from the disciples, that is. And if there were witnesses, what amazement must have been written on their faces? How would we have reacted? A modern poet, Vernon Watkins, writes in The Healing of the Leper. Oh, have you seen the leper healed and fixed your eyes upon his look? There is the book of God revealed, and God has made no other book. Wherever it happened, whether in town or out in the countryside, one thing is clear, the leper came to Jesus, and very probably from a considerable distance. 
where there is even the tiniest shadow of hope of a cure from an incurable disease, the sufferer will go to any lengths to obtain that cure. In the record of his experiences as a doctor in French Equatorial Africa in the early part of the 20th century, Albert Schweitzer wrote of one occasion. There arrives at the station an old man with leprosy. He and his wife have rowed themselves 250 miles upstream to visit the doctor and can hardly stand for exhaustion. The station was the deserted Protestant mission station of Lamberene on the river Ogoe, deep in the equatorial forest. Schweitzer was a talented musician and rising academic, but he was also deeply preoccupied with the suffering of others. So he abandoned his promising career, and after qualifying as a doctor in 1913, he left Europe with his wife, who was a nurse, to serve suffering humanity on the dark continent. Together with sleeping sickness, leprosy was a common plague in the area, and Schweitzer often had four or five lepers among the sick in his hospital, which at first was a former hen house. As for the medicine, he wrote... The only drug we have at our disposal for fighting this disease is the so-called Mugra oil, which is obtained from the seed of a tree in further India. It's expensive and usually comes into the market adulterated. I administered this nauseous drug in a mixture of sesame and earth nut oils, which makes it more tolerable for taking. Recently, the administration of Mugra oil by subcutaneous injection has also been recommended. A real cure for leprosy is beyond our powers, but a great improvement in a patient's health can be effected, and the disease can be reduced to a state of quiescence which lasts so long that it's practically equivalent to a cure. The attempts which have been made in recent years to cure the disease by means of a serum prepared from the bacillus that causes it and known under the name of Nastin allow us to hope that someday we shall be able to fight it effectively in this way. And 90 years on, the plague of leprosy has not yet been eliminated, but its treatment today is efficacious and it's more successfully controlled. Every year, moreover, there is a World Day for leprosy to remind people that it's still around. This was started by the philanthropist Raoul Follero, and the year 2003, the centenary of his birth, saw also the 50th edition of this annual event. Follero was the man who, at the height of the Cold War, when the superpowers were filling their arsenals with nuclear weapons, used to send them messages asking for the equivalent of the cost of a warplane as a contribution in the fight against leprosy. As he toured the world preaching peace and universal brotherhood, Follero visited the leper hospitals, embracing the lepers, to show that the disease should not be a reason for segregation, but a reason for love and the young people flocked to him in support of his campaign. What's more, he worked especially to combat the prejudices which went with the disease. Leprosy has always inspired revulsion, 
for not only was the disease infectious, it made sufferers' appearance so awful that people could not bear to look at them. Even Francis of Assisi, as he admitted himself in later life, had, as a young man, a horror of meeting a leper on the road. If he saw one two miles away, he would turn his horse's head and gallop off, holding his nose, and he'd send someone else to take arms to him. Wrote Francis in his testament. During my life of sin, nothing disgusted me like seeing victims of leprosy. It was the Lord himself who urged me to go to them. I did so, and ever since everything was so changed for me that what had seemed at first painful and impossible to overcome became easy and pleasant. Biographer Omar Engelbert tells the story of how Francis overcame his natural feelings of revulsion after God had told him to prefer bitterness to sweetness. One day, at a bend in the road, he suddenly found himself facing a man afflicted with leprosy. His first reaction was to turn back, but he immediately changed his mind, and dismounting, he embraced the wretch, gently putting some coins in his hand. He thereupon felt a great happiness pervade his whole being. It was God keeping his promise, and changing bitterness to sweetness for him, who had preferred bitterness to sweetness. But the young man was not content with his first victory. He sprang to the saddle and rode to a neighboring lazaret, apparently San Lazzaro d'Arce, about two miles from Assisi. Francis entered this last refuge of all human misery. He assembled its unfortunate inmates and begged their pardon for having so often despised them. He lingered some time in their company, and while waiting to come and live near them, he distributed money to them and left only after kissing them all on the mouth. There is a word which is used in one of the older versions of today's Gospel in describing our Lord's feelings on his meeting with the leper. It's the word compassion. The version we've heard today runs moved with pity and another has feeling sorry for him. But compassion, now there's a word with depth. In her book, Pustinia, Catherine de Huyck Doherty writes, The word that comes to me today is compassion. But in my mind, or is it my heart? It is spelled compassion. Yes, compassion. It means to share a passion, to share a pain, to be part of the pain, part of the passion. As I reflected on this word, the opening bars of that old hymn we used to sing at school came into my mind. God of mercy and compassion, look with pity upon me. Father, let me call thee Father, tis thy child returns to thee. The hymn was about sorrow for sin, and the request was for forgiveness. The leper was asking for a very different gift, and the request is not a direct one, if it is a request at all. Rather, it's an act of faith. If you will to do so, you can cure me. If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean, ran the old version, reminding us of that terrible cry the leper had to make, unclean, unclean. A modern comment runs, 
Jesus had compassion on him, Mark tells us, and the telling is precious. It's the first actual mention of that compassion which is to dominate his ministry. Again and again the miracles he chose to work were those which would bring relief to suffering, solace to anguish. What is particularly arresting about the description of this miracle of healing is the powerful use of gesture, of bodily communication, by both healer and healed. The leper, as he speaks, kneels down, pleaded on his knees, has one version, beseeching him and kneeling down is another. And Jesus, in answer to his plea, stretches out his hand and touches him, at the same time echoing the man's words, If you will to do so, you can cure me with his own. I do will it. Be cured. In his long poem, The Testament of Beauty, Robert Bridges comments, Our speech, in its mere vocal cries and calls, hath less natural beauty and true significance than the bodily gestures which convey our desires. If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. I will. Be thou made clean. And when he had spoken, immediately the leprosy departed from him, and he was made clean. The touching of the leper by Jesus, we read, is almost an act of taking on the disease so as to conquer it. Whatever it is, our Lord certainly suited the action to the words, and the whole miracle is over in a matter of minutes, while only a dozen or so words are used by the two protagonists. Until afterwards, when Jesus charges the man to tell no one and to go and show himself to the priest and make the ritual offering. Tell no one, Jesus said, but, as one writer put it, The priests would have to be told how this extraordinary thing had happened, and his friends, finding him well once more, would have besieged him with questions and spread abroad his answers. Tell no one, said Jesus, because he knew that the crowds could so easily be filled with a false enthusiasm, which would lead them to misunderstand his real message. The man, as we know, couldn't keep the secret, and so Jesus had to give the towns a wide berth and stay in desert places. And although this did not mean the desert proper, let's go there briefly in spirit and listen to Sister Mary Madeleva's poem, In Desert Places. God has a way of making flowers grow. He is both daring and direct about it. If you know half the flowers that I know, you do not doubt it. He chooses some grey rock, austere and high for garden plot, traffics with sun and weather, then lifts an Indian paintbrush to the sky, half flame, half feather. In desert places it is quite the same. He delves at petal plans, divinely, surely, until a bud too shy to have a name blossoms demurely. He dares to sow the waste, to plough the rock. Though Edom knew his beauty and his power, he could not plant in it a yucca stalk, 
a cactus flower. Many years ago, there was a marvellous film called, I think, The Living Desert, which showed the unique manner in which the desert flowers. And in an essay entitled The Desert, Aldous Huxley wrote of his extraordinary experience when visiting an Indian reservation in the Californian desert. It was the spring of 1952. And after seven years of drought, the rains of the preceding winter had been copious. From end to end, the Mojave was carpeted with flowers, sunflowers and the dwarf flocks, chicory and coreopsis, wild hollyhock and all the tribe of garlics and lilies. And then, as we neared the reservation, the flower carpet began to move. We stopped the car, we walked into the desert to take a closer look. On the bare ground, on every plant and bush, innumerable caterpillars were crawling. They were of two kinds, one smooth with green and white markings and a horn like that of a miniature rhinoceros growing out of its hinder end. The caterpillar, evidently, of one of the hawk moths. Mingled with these in millions, no less uncountable, were the brown hairy offspring of, I think, the painted lady butterfly. They were everywhere, over hundreds of square miles of the desert. Among the phloxes and the sunflowers, millions in the midst of hundreds of millions, they proclaimed the strength, the fecundity, the endless resourcefulness of life. Thank you. 